0: hello sorry this uh next episode i guess the episode yeah. Uh, yeah, i think they're called, they're called episodes uh it took me so long to record um i don't know i just got to it now i guess i don't know i'm just rambling because i'm yeah i'm just rambling because i feel like it and so I hope you enjoy that this first minute of this entire podcast is just me rambling. It's pretty pretty great. Okay, yeah. So, in the book anyway, um, so I read some of my own. So I <laughs> I've already read chapter one. Um. So what I'm pretty sure I read the prologue on here, and then I yeah I just read the prologue. Sorry, I got a little distracted. I had to tell you that you were cute because you were adorable. Um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, we're on chapter two now, uh, titled "Living with the Imperialists." Here's a quote: quote from Kim Il Sung's father, published in nine. What? I'm sorry, I'm just getting confused, but it's written down here. Okay, so this is a quote from Kim Il-sung's father. Comrade Kim Il-sung told his neighbors, Japs are the bastards who take away Koreans. Their spawn are bastards of the same color. We shall play amongst themselves, and if they say something, we'll attack them together and beat them down. The six-year-old Kim Jong-un stood by the billiard table in the game's room of the royal family's residence in Sinchon, south of Pyongyang. He and his older brother were waiting for their father to come out of a meeting with some officials, including their uncle, Jang Jong-chik. The brothers, the boys were dressed in child-sized military uniforms, olive green suits complete with gold buttons and red piping, and had moon-shaped hats on their head, heads and gold stars on their shoulders. They were little generals. When their father entered the room, they stood to attention like soldiers and saluted him. Serious expressions on their chubby faces. Kim Jong-il was delighted and wanted to introduce the boys to to the officials and the household staff before they went into the dining room next door. Everyone lined up to meet the little princes. Kenji Fujimoto, who had moved from Japan to North Korea to make sushi in the royal households, was at the end of the line. He grew more and more nervous as the princes got closer, his heart beating faster with every step they took. Kim Jong-chol was first. Fujimoto extended his hand, and the eight-year-old reciprocated with a firm shake. Then Fujimoto put out his hand for the younger child. This one was not so well-mannered. Instead of shaking Fujimoto's hand, Kim Jong-un glared at him with sharp eyes that seemed to say, You abhorrent Japanese. The chef was shocked and embarrassed that the child would stare down a 40-year-old man. After a few seconds that stretched out painfully for Fujimoto, Kim Jong-il intervened to save the situation. This is Mr. Fujimoto, Kim, Il, Kim Jong-il said, prompting Princess Un, Prince Jong-un to finally agree to shake hands, although without much enthusiasm. The chef thought there may have been some name recognition. Perhaps the boys had eaten the sushi he had prepared and heard that it had been made by Fujimoto from Japan. The boys' reaction made the chef wonder if he had taken on the anti-imperialist mindset that is, key, that is the key part of North Korea's narrative. But he may simply have been struck by the oddity of, the, of Fujimoto, who could charitably be called idiosyncratic. In 1982, down on his luck and unhappy in his marriage, Fujimoto responded to an ad in a Japanese newspaper for sushi chef in North Korea. It was an unusual career choice, given that Jap- Japan was entering its boom years, when bankers in Lamborghinis thought nothing of paying hundreds of dollars for raw fish dinner. Meanwhile, North Korea was, well, North Korea. But Fujimoto got a job, and off he went. He ended up slicing fish for Kim Jong-il for some 15 years and regularly saw Kim Jong-un throughout his childhood and teenage years. When it emerged in 2010 that Kim Jong-un was going to be the next leader of North Korea, Fujimoto instantly became an unlikely source of intelligence on the North Korean leadership, perhaps the most unlikely source until a pierced, tattooed, bad boy American basketballer came along. Fujimoto lived in North Korea for a year from 1982 to before Kim Jong-un was born and then returned in 1987 and stayed until 2001. Um, just a quick second here. <laughs> oh, did I forget to mention that? You're cute and i'm always gonna tell you that and you're always cute no matter what no matter what that's how it shall stay you're the cutest and you cannot change my mind okay back to kim jong-un <laughs> he lived in the secretariat secretariat residential block at a compound in Pyongyang that also contained the Workers' Party of Korea offices and one of Kim Jong-il's residences, and the meals prepared for Kim Jong-il by a team of chefs were lavish. They were, there was grilled uh, pheasant, shark fin soup, Russian-style barbecue goat meat, steamed turtle, roast chicken and pork, and Swiss-style risotto, raclette cheese melted on potatoes. The royal family ate only rice produced in a special area of the country. Female workers hand-picked each grain one by one, making sure to choose flawless grains of equal size. Sushi was on the menu once a week. Fujimoto made lobster sashimi and wasabi soy sauce and a nigiri sushi with fatty tuna, yellowtail, eel, and caviar. Seabass was Kim Jong Il's favorite. Because of his role within the inner circle, Fujimoto frequently visited the other royal compounds around the country, including the beachfront palace in Wonsan. He went jet skiing with Kim Jong Il, rode motorbikes with him, and a powerful Honda for Kim Jong. Wait, <sighs> he went jet skiing with Kim Jong Il, rode motorbikes with him, a powerful Honda for Kim Jong Il, a lesser powered Yamaha for Fujimoto near the western border of China, and joined him on duck-shooting expeditions in the countryside. They traveled on Kim's luxury train or a convoy of Mercedes-Benz. And Fujimoto spent lots of his time with the children. Shut in the compounds in Pyongyang, being schooled at home by tutors, spending the summers alone on a beach in Wonsan. Kim Jong-un had a solitary childhood. He and Yong-chol had no friends. They didn't even play with their older half-brother Yong-nam. Who lived his own entirely separate, sequestered life, and their little sister was too many years younger than them to make her a good playmate. This seems to have led them to seize on any opportunity for outside company, even a princeling who wanted for nothing, who wanted for nothing, wanted friends. To find out what Kim Jong Un was as a boy, I got on the bullet train from Tokyo and zipped out to Sakur. Secadaria, a small town in Japanese Alps where Fujimoto, a pseudonym which he says is needed for protection, was living. He was a bit lonely when he was little, Fujimoto told me over lunch in a sleepy town. and became a kind of playmate to him. We became like friends. I had seen photos of Fujimoto, so I know he wore a kind of disguise to obscure his ident- identity a little. Still, it was drawing when I emerged from the station to find him waiting for me. A black bandana with a white skull motif on his head. Purple tinted glasses, a huge watch, and diamond-crusted square ring that had that wore, that wore were more rapper bling than low-profile witness protection scheme. On my first trip to see him, when he had gone upstairs to a private room in the Chinese restaurant, Fujimoto gave me his business card. It featured a, a photo of Kim Jong-un embracing Fujimoto on one side, On the other it read, If you want to talk about North Korea, call me. He carried a clipboard holding Japanese newspaper clippings from his most recent trip to Pyongyang, and some photos that he had printed out in A4 size. With so few outsiders having met the young North Korean leader, Fujimoto had become something of a Kim jong Unologist. The presence of Fujimoto in the royal household was a contr- contradiction in the regime. While North Korea's existence was based on its rejection of the United States and its vision for a democratic and, and its democratic world order, it was also built on hatred of Japan. Korea had suffered greatly during its colonization by imperial Japan for the first half of the 20th, 20th century. In the previous decades, Japan had embarked on an aggressive expansion in Asia, defeating both China and Russia militarily and then taking control of the entire Korean Peninsula. Japan made Korea its protectorate in 1905 and then formally annexed the peninsula in 1910, starting 35 years of often brutal colonial rule. Toward the end of this period, Koreans were forced to take Japanese names and speak Japan at school and work. Once World War II started, men were forced to work in Japanese factories and mines to help the war effort, and were conscripted as soldiers into the Imperial Japanese Army. Tens of thousands of Korean girls and women were forced to become sex slaves for Japanese soldiers in comfort stations. When Japan was defeated in 1945, it had to give up control of the peninsula to the victors. In both halves north of the Korean Peninsula, the memories of this period run deep, even to this day. The Kim family had built its regime on Kim Il-sung's anti-imperialist, anti-Japanese credentials. The Japanese hated General Kim Il-sung and, most among, and the most among 30 million Koreans, a biography published in 1948, noted approvingly. For decades after Jap- Japan's defeat, the North Korean regime found it helpful to keep the hatred burning strong. It also took provocative acts of revenge. Starting in the late 1970s and continuing through the 1980s, North Korean spies abducted dozens of Japanese citizens, snatching them from beaches and parks on Japanese West coasts and bundling them into boats. Once the Japanese abductees were in North Korea, the regime's agents worked to break them psychologically and then under one's control, put them to use as spies or language teachers. The Japanese government officially says that 17 of its citizens were taken to North Korea, which has acknowledged 13 of them. The most famous of the abductees is Megumi Yoko. Yokota, a 13-year-old who was taken on her way home from school in 1977. North Korea allowed five of the abductees to return in 2002, but says eight of the others, including Megumi, died in North Korea. To this day, North Korea still regularly demonizes Japan and its state media, denouncing Japanese reactionaries and threatening to turn the country into a nuclear sea of fire. But there's one important detail the state propaganda never reported. Kim Jong-un has a strong personal connection to, J- to Japan. His beloved mother was born there. In 1929, when the Korean Peninsula was under Japanese colonial rule, the man called Koikoyo Take, Take, the 26-year-old son of a boatman, moved from the southern Korean island of Jeju to Osaka, a Japanese city that was becoming home to an increasingly large Korean community. He settled in the area of Ik- Ikuno, a part of central Osaka that is still a strongly Korean neighborhood. There, he worked as, at a factory called Hirota Oh my gosh, Hirota Sehojo Sewing Plant, which had stopped making business shirts and started making military uniforms and tents. After the end of the war, as Japan had, was rapidly trying to rebuild itself into a modern and democratic nation, Ko and his wife built a family, first a son, and then on June 26, 1952, a daughter that they named Young Hoi. Young Hoi went on the Japanese name of Himi Takada. At her public elementary school in Osaka, she loved to perform the sang hymns in a church choir every Sunday. Four years later, her, a sister arrived. Her name was yong Suk. After the war, their father got in trouble with the police. He was rumored to be operating an illegal boat connection connecting Osaka and Jeju, and reportedly ordered to be deported. There were rumors that Ko was also a womanizer and had multiple children by different mistresses. To cut ties with these other women and get himself out of hot water, Ko decided to hightail it out of Japan. Conveniently, North Korea had begun encouraging ethnic Koreans to return from Japan at the end of the 1950s. Never mind that almost all the Koreans in Japan hailed from the South. The Japanese government had supported the idea, seeing it as a way to shrink the ethnic Korean population in their country. North Korea, the potential migrants were told as a socialist paradise on Earth, a country that offered free housing, education, and healthcare, where jobs were guaranteed, where Koreans would suffer none of the prejudice they endured in Japan. What's more, North Korea's economy was in better shape than South at the time, and the South was led by Syngman Rhee, a ferocious conservative who was used, viewed as a puppet of the United States. Between 1959 and 1965, more than eighty ninety three thousand people fell for the Kim regime's sales pitch and moved from Japan to North Korea. The Ko family joined the tide. When Young Hoi was ten, they boarded the ninety re- ninth uh, repatriation ship, setting out to make the five hundred five hundred and sixty mile journey to North Korea. They disembarked on Chong- Chongjin the port city on the east coast and the, f- and the farthest place on the Korean peninsula from the Koh family- family's ancestral home in Je- on Jeju Island. For many ethnic Koreans who had left a country that was rapidly turning itself into a world economic power of the war coming home was a huge disappointment. Some killed themselves on arrival when they realized they'd been duped. And I think that's where I'm going to end reading here. Um, I don't know how much you actually pay attention to the reading, but it actually was kind of interesting. I mean, it's really it's really just history. On, right now, it's really just history on North Korea and the Kim family, really. Um, ooh, John, um, but I find it interesting. I think it's kind of cool. I think it's interesting to learn about these things. I don't know. I'm sure you're either asleep by now or you're... So zoned out that you don't even realize that I'm not reading the book anymore. <laughs> but uh, if you are paying attention and you're listening for some sort of secret nice message at the end, um, I love you. You are so important to me. And I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you. Now, either sleep well or have fun getting to whatever destination you're driving to. Okay? Love you.